So we're going to come to our reading. Let's read from the word of this glorious God. We're going to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In the NIV, it's got the title, The Man of Lawlessness. And it reads, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he, him, he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding, up, what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned and have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we, all, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as his firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray for Nick as he comes to expand that for us. Lord, thank you for our pastor. Thank you for placing him with us. Thank you for giving him wisdom. Thank you for giving him the, the words to say, the, the opportunity and the skills to be able to share and expand on your word, Lord, so that we may understand better that we may find the ways of applying this truth to our lives we pray for nick now as he comes to teach us in jesus name amen thanks thanks mark thanks rob i think as i go forward in life i think i've become more conscious that um born in 1965 that the war seemed like just a, a generations ago, but my father was born in 1914, um, and, and so, yes, he was quite old when I was born, um, you can do the math, uh, as they say, um, but a couple more conscious, I guess, as time goes on, that uh, the war was still looming over, um, you know, my, my parents' generation, but that's not really what I was thinking. Um, Somewhere in the loft at home, there's the Gray family archive. Um, my sister gave it to me. 
Um, so my sister had a loft conversion, um, and she gave me the Gray family archive, which consists of various crates uh, and boxes. And I know what's in most of it. There's my great-grandfather's shepherd's plaid. He was a shepherd. And I think a plaid is just a great big piece of material that you sort of wrap around yourself. Um, somewhere in there, I believe, is a pack of letters that my, my father wrote home during the war, during the Second World War. I don't even know it is there. I've never read them. I think both my brother and my sister read them. Um, so my father was a private in the medical corps in the Second World War. He didn't want to fight. He didn't feel as a Christian. He, he could fight. Um, and so rather than taking a commission, he, he served as, as a private in the medical corps. Though from what he told me, which was not a great deal, he seemed to have spent quite a lot of the war in this country um, and quite a lot of the time putting a piano on the back of a lorry and, and he and some mates had a little kind of um, uh, knock together dance band and they would go and, 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 and play for entertainments. Um, though I guess actually that was just the good story and so you heard it more than the other stories. He went over to France on D-Day um, I think he went over, but I think, from what I understand, I think he was probably, they, they sat out in, in the ships for a couple of days, and he landed uh, in France a couple of days after D-Day. So he must have seen the fighting. He must have seen people killed. He didn't talk about it. He must have treated the wounded. That was his job. He never talked about that. He did talk about dancing with survivors of Bergen-Belsen. Um, I don't know, again, I don't know how soon after the liberation he was there. I don't think he was the first wave in. That was a great trauma, if you've ever uh, heard or seen that story on the TV. He wrote letters home um, during that time. But there was surprisingly little in them. Um, and he always signed them off, your dutiful son, uh, which I think spoke to his relationship with his parents. And if I were to give you that pack of papers, uh, that pack of letters that my father wrote home from the war, <laughs> What would you need? What would you need to understand them? You've got one side of the, converse, uh, of the conversation, and you don't know this man. What would help you to understand? Well, you would need to know something about his character. I could tell you a little bit about that. If you had records to other documents and the letters were dated, you might be able to say, oh, um, that letter comes you know, on the eve or, or the day after um, that particular battle. Well, you might look for other sources which speak about him and his family background. There's a strange book called Granny Gray Remembers, um, which today would be called Vanity Publishing. Um, but it would tell you a little bit about um, his family background. Why is all this re relevant? Well, this is what it's like to study Paul. This is what it's like to study Paul. We only have one side of the correspondence. We have two letters that he wrote to the Thessalonians. We have some idea of his character um, from, uh, from his other writings and his beliefs and things other people, like Luke, said about him. We have some idea about Thessalonica from other sources, again from Luke, Acts, Acts 17. Um, and we can know about Thessalonica from history, um, from other historical writers. But we don't have their side of the story. We have to try and recreate it from the text that we have and from the historical data. And this passage is one of those situations where, frustratingly, it's quite difficult to do. The issue, again, is, is Jesus' second coming. 
and particularly how the second coming relates to the coming of a man of lawlessness, who I think is the same person who in other parts of scripture is called the Antichrist. So let's have a look. Well, let's have a look to start with at the problems. We have, we have multiple problems here. Paul has taught the Thessalonians um, about this before, he says. I've taught you about this before. And he is reminding them, but frustratingly, we weren't there um, for the first conversation. So he says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? In verse 5, no, Paul, we don't remember because we weren't there. Um, and he says later on, you know what is holding, you know what is holding the man of lawlessness back. No, we don't, Paul, because we weren't there and, you, and we weren't there to hear it. So we have a bit of a problem. And, and there are issues that we need to try and work out. I think there's a second problem, which is Paul is not really spelling this out. I think he's being a bit elusive, not elusive, but elusive. He's kind of just alluding to things. Um, without really spelling them out as he might have done. So sometimes when I write notes about pastoral situations, I don't use the name of the... If it's really sensitive, I don't use the name um, of, of the person involved. And, and even when I'm writing stuff for my own notes, I, I might allude to something without kind of spelling out what actually happened. Because it's so sensitive. <coughs> it's, part, it's all password protected, but I just don't want it... You know, somebody else would happen to find a way of reading it over my shoulder. And I think that's what's happening with Paul here. He's, he's, he's kind of not really spelling this out in ABC terms for us because he doesn't want this to get into the wrong hands. And he doesn't want, I think, there were Jewish opponents in Thessalonica and he doesn't want them to be able to get this letter and, and, uh, and, and throw it in front of the, uh, of the Roman authorities and say, look what this guy is saying about you. But that in itself is a clue that I think that the Roman authorities are part of what Paul is talking about here. And there's another big question, I think. There are a couple of big questions, and um, I hope by the end of this, at least we will have nailed some things down. We won't just have raised questions. We will have, uh, have nailed some things down. But Paul talks about a coming man of lawlessness. And there are a couple of, I think, of really big questions. Does this man arise from within the church or from outside the church? And I still, even as I read this this morning, I kind of changed my mind. It's one of those things I keep flip-flopping about. Is, is this man, uh, I, I, it, it's clearly a religious phenomenon. What we're going to be talking about this morning is a religious phenomenon. Um, so it's quite possible this, this man has arisen in something that looks like a church, at least. <coughs> and is this rebellion, and the word is actually apostasy, is this rebellion, is it inside the church or is it outside? Is it a kind of generalized rebellion against law, or is it, a kind of, is it an apostasy, a falling away within the church? And I think it's the latter. So being as clear as we can be, I think this man, he, 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 it's a religious phenomenon. He, he comes up out of a religious context, whatever it might be, and he causes a falling away within the church. <coughs> So with those things in place, let's look at the deceptions. We're going to talk about deception one, deception two, um, and, and how to avoid them. And the Thessalonians are, are, are falling. The first deception that they are potentially falling into is that they think that the day of the Lord has already come. They think that somehow Jesus has returned on the quiet. 
Um, maybe they think that when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to come and live within people, that was Jesus returning. Even though they've been told that Jesus will return bodily and loudly. So the fact that they've come to this point is odd, except that it sounds like they've maybe uh, somebody's come along and said, hey, we, we've had this from Paul. And maybe somebody's pretended this has come from the apostles. Um, and Paul gives them two ways not to be deceived about that. He says, trust the thing we first said. Don't become easily unsettled. Um, trust what we said the first time around, essentially. Don't believe anything else. And he says, don't believe, he says in other contexts, don't even believe us if we come and tell you, and tell you something else. You see, if, if, if Paul had said one thing, and then he'd come back and said another thing, then he wouldn't be an apostle, would he? Because he was saying that apostles had definitive revelation from the Lord. So if he said one thing, and then he's come back and, and he's said another thing, then he's not an apostle because he's, he's contradicted himself and, and clearly he, he can't have revealed, he can't have, act, uh, he can't have accepted a revelation from the Lord if he's kind of changing his mind. And I know that's a bit, maybe that sounds a bit airy-fairy, but it's not. Trust what you heard the first time around. There's nothing really novel uh, in, in Christianity. We can do the same. We can trust um, Paul's apostolic revelation. Let the clearer passages interpret the less clear passages. That's just a standard procedure. And, and dig into scripture. If you want to know about these things, dig in. It's unfashionable in our age. It's unfashionable to be dogmatic about anything. It's fashionable to be vague. But it's Christian to dig in until you understand. And then not be easily moved from it. Christian theology is a discipline that doesn't really progress over time. So yes, in the last you know, few decades... There are new tools, so you now have computerized Bibles, um, and you can go and search on words and variations of words and words in a certain tense and words in a certain um, case, so there, there, are new, there are new tools for Christian understanding, but nothing of substance. So we may some, see some things a little bit clearer, and nothing of substance has changed. It's one of the strange things about Christianity. We feel, because science changes, and science is a great endeavor, I love science, um, and, and, and tries to explore more, and James Webb Telescope, you know, has gone into the sky, it's an amazing achievement, and we can see things further than we've never seen before. It doesn't really happen with Christianity. Okay, you, you, you see what you see. There are some ways of seeing more, and we'll talk about that later on. So the first thing Paul says to them is simply trust what you said. And the other, the other thing says, just don't be deceived about um, thinking that Jesus already returned, because certain things need to happen before he comes. And he says, I've told you this before. And one of the things he says in verse 3, uh, rebellion occurs. And actually, I don't think rebellion is a good translation. Uh, the word is, is literally apostasy um, in the Greek, which means a kind of a, a falling away occurs. And a man of lawlessness will be revealed. 
says those two things will happen before Christ returns. And this man of lawlessness, I think we can call him the, the Antichrist, but he's not Satan. We have a picture of a kind of red bodybuilder with a horns and a tail, don't we? He's a person, not Satan. And the problem is he will look like the real thing. That's the problem. He won't look like a, like a cartoon devil. He will look like something convincingly Christian. But there are certain events. We'll go into that in a minute. So Paul says, firstly, trust the things you've heard. These things don't change. So don't believe it when somebody says they've changed. Um, certain things have to occur. And, and we could add that you don't need to be surprised that, that, or think that Jesus already returned. Because when he returns, it, it's going to be clear. It's not going to be hidden. And Jesus himself said, um, if anyone tells you there he is, that's Jesus coming back. There he is out in the desert. Don't go. Or if somebody says, here he is. He's um, in the inner rooms. You, you, you and me and these two other guys, you come in here um, uh, uh, and we'll meet the risen Jesus. He says, don't believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible in the west, so it will be uh, with the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus is really clear. Don't get confused. Well, sorry, Paul is and Jesus. Really clear. About Jesus' return. Trust the first things that we've said. Certain events are, are going to occur, and when he comes, it's going to be, it's going to be clear. Jesus is not going to return on the quiet. When he comes, it will be globally, globally visible, and loud, and glorious. So they don't need to be deceived about that, and I guess we are not readily deceived by that. But you, but it happens. You know, people come along and say. Um, usually they, they uh, sometimes they get quite famous and they get on TV um, but usually we're, we're, that's not our deception but there's a second deception and this is this man of, of lawlessness um, that's next slide so this second deception the problem with this guy uh, and Paul alludes to this is that he uses the same language about him that he does about Jesus so he used, there's, there's a talk of a secret power of lawlessness, a secret there, the same word mystery, that, that Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel. He talks about this man of lawlessness being revealed. He talks about him coming. He talks about him using power and signs and wonders. And this is the problem. Someone who's coming who will be so like the real thing that he'll deceive many people. But let's note a number of things. Let's try and be clear on the things we can be clear about. He is human. He is human. It's a person. And I think here we can, we can cross-reference with uh, John's second letter. He said, dear children, this is the last hour, and you've heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. And he says, they went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. If they belonged to us, they would have remained with us, he said, but their going out showed they didn't belong to us. So John says the number of people who've gone out from the church, maybe these are false teachers, and they are the Antichrists. Okay? He says the Antichrist, he doesn't use a capital A, but he says the Antichrist is, is coming. Already there are little ones. And I think that's true. There's little antichrists in every generation. 
And yet even, and so Paul can talk about a secret power of lawlessness that's already uh, at work. In other words, in every generation there are, there are little antichrists with a small a. There will be false teachers. There will be people who will maybe be convincing. You need to be on your guard that they're not Christ. So he's human. He sets himself up in, he sets himself up in God's temple. I think this is the least clear thing because if that's true in this generation, there isn't, there isn't a temple in Jerusalem for him to, um, to set himself up in. So where does he set himself up? Does he set himself up in a, in a future temple to come? Or does he set himself up in the church? Well, I'm not going to be dogmatic about this. But um, I think probably, in a sense, he sets himself up in the church. Paul says, don't you know that you yourself are God's temple? He's talking to Christians. God's spirit lives among you. If anyone destroys God's temple, again, he's still talking about the church. God will destroy that person for God's temple. Again, he's talking about the church. is sacred and you together are that temple. Paul's really clear at that point. So potentially he sets himself up in, in the church. He'll be empowered by Satan to do amazing things. We, we read that. It says his coming will be in accordance with how Satan works. He'll use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders. When he comes, it will look like Soul Survivor. Or Benny Hinn, or maybe Hillsong, or, or Bethel. Yeah, when he comes, it'll look like signs and wonders that you see. In fact, it might even look more convincing. You'll go, actually, this is, this is more convincing than any of those other places. These signs and wonders, these, these are definitely real. Uh, I've seen this. These are attested. These are happening. You can't judge Christian movements on their miracles. That's, I think, of, you know, one thing to take away from this morning. That would be one of them. You cannot judge Christian movements on their apparent power in miracles. You have to judge them another way. You have to judge them on their gospel faithfulness. So that means you have to dig down into their statements of faith. You really do. So, you have to go to the website, you know, and if the statement of faith isn't somewhere fairly accessible from the top menus, that tends to tell you something anyway. But you have to dig down. And you have to judge them against truth. You have to judge them against the gospel and against Christian orthodoxy. Historical Christian orthodoxy, you can't judge them on what they look like or the apparent miracles or the apparent success. I think that's a really important takeaway from this morning. What else happens is that those who refuse to love the truth will be deceived. You see, that ties in. There's a real temptation, I think, as Christians. We, we want power uh, more than we want truth. And, and Paul says, those who refuse to love truth um, will be deceived. 
they, they will believe the lie. Paul says this, this power of lawlessness, although this man has not yet come, as far as we we're aware, there is a power of lawlessness already at work. Satan is already behind the scenes, empowering spurious ministries and, and religious phenomena. Talk about how to avoid it in a minute. And until he comes, Paul says there is, there is a one or a something that is holding, holding this lawlessness back. There is something that is holding him back. And here I, I, I kind of be, I, I have to tell you, I, I don't know what the answer is. Because initially I think I thought this rebellion was kind of like a general rebellion against law. Um, and one of the things commentators say, well, the thing that holds them back is the rule of law. And then one day God will just let that fall and then... This man will be revealed, but actually the more I read about it, the more I think this is something, it's a religious thing. It's happening in the church. So I don't know what is holding him back. But that thing that is holding him back will be taken away. That's not necessarily by force. It could be this, there's an angelic being holding him back. And one day God says, don't do that anymore. And then this man will be fully revealed. But it sounds to me like when he's fully revealed, he's destroyed. Verse 8, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow by the breath of his mouth, mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. When he comes, Jesus' breath will be enough to knock him over. And Jesus will outglory him. The splendor of Jesus will outglory him many thousands and millions of times over and it will become clear who is divine, who is God. But in the meantime, Satan provides power for miraculous signs and wonders so that, this is really scary, so that people will be, believe the lie. This is really hard, and I think you need to read it again, and I'm still not sure I've got it in the right order. But Paul says that some people, some people wickedness is deceitful. So people who who like a bit of wickedness, who like a bit of sin, they, they want to stay in the dark. And because they want to stay in the dark, so they don't see the light. So there's a kind of vicious circle there that, that, that wickedness, is, wickedness is, is deceitful and self-deceiving. These are people who already think this doesn't really matter or they think that this issue is not really sin or they're just neither of those. They're just saying this is something I really enjoy and I'm going to do it anyway. And for those people who choose not to believe the gospel, God kind of... Uh, he gives them the ultimate of that thing they've started, of that line that they've started down. They've, they've chosen to be self-deceitful. They've chosen to allow wicked to deceive them, and God sends them a delusion. He says a powerful delusion, <coughs> and so that they will carry on believing this guy, and they won't believe the truth of Christ. So that ultimately they will be condemned. It's hard, but that's what it says. How do you avoid this? That's the key thing. Well, Paul says this, going forward into verse 13. 
We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. And he called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The way you carry on is by continuing to believe the gospel. This is your safeguard. The gospel came to you. The Lord called you, did he not? To the gospel message, called to you and he said, come on, um, whoever it is, Lee, Harvey, Celia, come on, come in. Uh, this is my message. Um, you, you're sinful. You deserve punishment for that sin, but I will put that punishment on Jesus. Come to me. Come to me. Be forgiven. Um, come to be me and be my son, be my, my daughter. Sit tight um, to that gospel, that message that you heard. You are called by the gospel message. Paul says you've been sanctified by the work of that gospel message. And sanctified, I think, here in, in two senses. When you become a Christian, you're justified. In other words, God doesn't, um, God doesn't, God counts you as, as if you were Jesus in terms of righteousness. And he counts Jesus as if he were you in terms of sin uh, and sends him to the cross. Um, but in a sense, that's a sanctification too, because you're looked on then in God's eyes as if you were holy. So the gospel message has brought you holiness in front of God. That gospel message that brings you into a relationship with God means that you have the Holy Spirit living within you, which means that you go on to be more and more like Jesus practically. Definitive and progressive sanctification. And that gospel message, that simple gospel message, destines you to share in Jesus' glory. Stand firm and hold fast. Paul says, to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. So let's just think about what your response might be this morning. Conscious of running out of time. Okay, your first response might be, I'm still a bit confused, but it's okay. Jesus wins in the end. I'm going to stay a bit confused. I'll just, I'll just park this um, and, and not deal with it. I don't think that's an acceptable response. Okay, so uh, Wayne Grudem says in the book that we're doing in Illuminate, he says, do Christians, in fact, eagerly long for Christ's return? The more Christians are caught up in enjoying the good things of this life, and the more they neglect genuine Christian fellowship and their personal relationship with Christ, the less they will long for his return. On the other hand, many Christians who are experiencing suffering or persecution or who are elderly and infirm and all who have a vital and deep daily walk with Christ will have a more intense longing for his return. Do you get that? So to some extent, he says, the degree to which we actually long for Christ's return is a measure of the spiritual condition of our own lives at the present moment. And I think that's true. The degree to which we long for Christ's return is a measure of the spiritual condition of our own lives at the moment. And he says, it also 
uh, gives some measure of the degree in which we see the world as it really is. As God sees it, in bondage to sin and rebellion against God and in the power of the evil one. So I think at times Christians are not bothered about, not bothering about this issue of looking at Jesus' return because we don't like to not understand things. We like to understand things. But in Christianity, understanding is, is a moral thing and understanding is a relational thing. Let me explain. So your understanding is a moral thing. In other words, God says, be holy because I'm holy. And the more you are holy, like God, the more you understand. So the less you understand, the less you can really be like God. Understanding is a moral issue. You can't say, don't, don't sit there and say, there are things I don't understand. Just encourage you not to, not to take that position. And understanding is a relational issue. The more you know God's love for you, the more it frees you to understand more about your sinfulness. The more you know about the strength of your relationship with God, the more confident you are that he came in the flesh and that he's coming back in the flesh. Um, understanding is a moral issue and, it, and it's a relational issue. Please don't say, this is one of those issues that I don't understand, it's, it's not for me, because you, uh, you're cutting yourself off from the Lord. It's not a position that, that mature Christians take. The other reason um, Christians don't want to think about the end times is because there are some weirdos who really like to. Okay. There are some people who get really obsessed um, about end times things and you kind of think, I don't want to be like them. I'm happy to drive my Vauxhall, but I don't want to join the Zafira Owners Club. See what I mean? Happy to take a steam train journey once in a while on holiday, but I don't want to join the Train Spotters Association. In other words, you're put off by some people who are obsessed. Well, I've got some bad news for you. You're a paid-up member of the Looking Forward to Jesus Return Club. So sorry. But if you're a Christian, you're already a member, or a paid-up member, fully stamped, of the Looking Forward to, to Jesus Return Club. Stop trying to deny it. Just accept it. Get out the owner's club manual and read it until you understand. And then we won't be taken in by any of these deceptions when they come. So let's pray and we'll sing. Sorry, not much time. Yeah. Father God, this is, a, 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 this is just one of those places where he, he, Paul doesn't seem clear to start with, let alone us trying to understand it. We pray, I pray, for us to have the courage to, to say that we don't understand, to say that to you, to go back to the scriptures, to go back to other resources, 
um, to read them afresh. To come to you and, and plead and cry out for understanding. You are the God that gives understanding and the scriptures are your mechanism. We ask that we keep pursuing the truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.